So, completely different subject. Anybody ever need a part to fix something? Yeah, a vehicle, a refrigerator, a dryer, uh, I don't know, you name it. Something goes down and then you, if you're like me, you keep buying appliances that keep not working and um, instead of buying more appliances, you want to try to fix the one you got and you start looking. We've had a lot of problem out of our refrigerator. We've had three refrigerators in our house in 12 years. Three. I'm not bitter, but anyway, you start looking and you start diagnosing and you find the part that you need, hopefully. Of course, you can order it and you get it in. It's not the right one and then you got to send it back and all this time. Anyway. Well, I've, I've actually dealt in selling parts for almost a third of my life. Um, started with Advance Auto Parts in 2006 and I got my first glimpse of how vital some parts were to some people. Uh, the, the store there in Sofia used to be a, a local warehouse. For other advances, as far north as Summersville and as far south as Taswell, Virginia. As such, we had a lot of parts that other stores and other people didn't have. People would drive to Sofia from Taswell, from uh, Withville, from Summersville, because we had the part in stock that they needed to fix their car. And when you got to fix your car, you got to fix your car. So it was worth it to them to drive instead of waiting for the overnight to get it the next day. And actually, it wasn't just worth it. It was vital to them. And then I left Advance. This is not my testimony, by the way. This is just, you know, just some... I left Advance and, and went and started working for a coal mining machinery manufacturer. Now, you want to talk about some desperate people. If a coal mine has a machine down that is driving production, they will do anything. They will pay any price to get that part to them as soon as they can. They don't care about price. They don't care about explanation. Do you have it? Yes, I do. Get it to me. And their standard answer is, when do you need it? The answer is, yesterday. Every time. They're like, okay, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. Um, I had a guy who delivers parts for us to the mines, and he said he had to drive from here to Alabama once to a mine down there, and they needed this. T- he, he was carrying his hand as a tiny little part that was driving production for him. Uh, I, I think the belt was down or something. And the people told them that it was costing them $30,000 an hour every hour that that machine was down. And they literally applauded when he pulled onto the plant site. They were like, yeah, parts here. They just, that, that part, vital parts, parts you can't do without, important parts. Well, today we're going to see Jesus deliver some vital parts. And he's going to do it in a very peculiar way. It's a great story. You might even say it's a vital one in this progression of miracles that we've seen in Matthew 8 and now as we start into Matthew 9. So our public reading today is from Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. So if you would please stand as we recognize the vitalness. I don't know if that's a word or not. The vital nature of the Word of God. Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God, who had given such authority to men. Let's pray. Father, we trust you to give us what we need today. Through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, as your people are assembled. Teach us, instruct us, convict us, save us, God, so that you might get glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. 
So if you've been here over the past few weeks, uh, you know that Matthew chapter 8, as we've worked through Matthew, and as Matthew has painted this portrait of Jesus, this very particular portrait of Jesus, as the King, the King of Israel, the King of the Jews, the King of the world, the Messiah of God. Through chapter 8, we've seen a progression of miracles. We saw Jesus heal a leprous man with a touch which you're just not supposed to touch leprous people. That's silly now, isn't it? But Jesus did it and He healed the man. We then saw Him heal a paralytic with a word from a distance. The centurion's servant was sick and actually he was afraid he was going to die. And the centurion said, if you just send the word, my servant will be made well. Jesus sent the word and he was made well. Then he went into Peter's house where he raised Peter's mother up from the bed where she was suffering with the fever. And then it says, They brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons, and everyone that he came into contact with he made well and whole. And then we saw last week, which is this is where we pick up from. We pick up from last week where Jesus had arrived in the region of Gadara and delivered two men who had been demonized by a legion of demons. And following his delivering them, the townspeople out of fear begged him to leave their city. So we pick up here in verse 1, and getting into a boat, he crossed over and came into his own city. So that's where we find him. He's leaving the area of the Gerasenes, the Gadarenes, and coming back up toward Capernaum to the north section of the Sea of Galilee. And it comes. it says he comes to his own city. Now, we've talked a few times over the past few weeks when they refers to his own city, it's referring to Capernaum. Okay? Uh, why Capernaum? He grew up where? Not Capernaum. He grew up in Nazareth. Well, why was Nazareth not his city now? Why was Nazareth not his town? Well, something interesting. They actually tried to kill Jesus in Nazareth. Okay? I wouldn't want to hang out there either if they're trying to kill me. Um, but they literally tried to push him over a cliff but it says that he passed through their midst. And following that, which you can see in Luke 4, that story about him passing through their midst when they're trying to kill him in Nazareth, following that, Jesus had focused his ministry in Capernaum, where it is thought that he may have, um, John MacArthur, some other commentators think that Jesus stayed with Peter and his family there in Capernaum because that's where Peter was from. And that's very possibly where this account today takes place. We know he's in Capernaum, and it very well may be Peter and his family's um, house. We do know for sure that it happened in Capernaum, even though Matthew doesn't mention it, because uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 1 says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So that's how we know that we're in Capernaum. We don't know for sure it was Peter's house, but it very well could have been. That just kind of sets the stage for today after what we saw last week after he left the area of the Gadarenes. So verse 2, And behold, some people brought him a paralytic, brought to him a paralytic, lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now this is, this is the bulk of the message right here. This verse is oh, monstrous. It starts out with, And behold... And we've said this before, but again, not all of you have been with us uh, when we've said this. But when you see and behold, it's a call to attention. Anybody ever listen to Charles Stanley? Are you familiar with it? He says, and listen, listen, and, and, and listen, and listen. He says that all the time. It drives me nuts because I'm like, stop saying that. I am listening. But this is kind of like Matthew saying, now listen. When you see and behold, and behold. It's a call to attention. It's a call to stop and actually look upon. Stop what you're doing. Pay attention to this. Not just a casual description of something that may or may not be consequential. And behold is saying to focus your whole being upon what's going on. And what are we supposed to focus on here? And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now Matthew is very... Summarily, summarily. He, he speaks in summaries, okay? He, he, he's quick in his accounts. He doesn't give a whole lot of detail. So when he says in this staccato style, the style that they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed, he doesn't tell the full story here. He doesn't want to. He doesn't care about the whole story. He's just trying to prove to you that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the King. 
So I'm going to work with him there, and I won't give a lot of detail. Uh, but we will mention, this is an account that you're probably more familiar with out of Mark and Luke, where the people who bring the paralytic are the ones who actually dig through the roof and let the paralytic down through the roof to Jesus because it's so crowded in the house they can't get in. And again, Matthew doesn't tell us that, but Mark and Luke do. And the way the houses were built in those days, you usually had a two-story house. The main living area was downstairs. You had outside stairs that went to the upstairs. And then they had the upper room, like where Jesus and his disciples had the Last Supper. And then above that, you went onto the roof because it was cool there. That You could catch a breeze there. A lot of times people hung out on the roof. So these people climbed those stairs to the topmost part of the roof and they just start chipping away at whoever's house it was, if it was Peter's, just start busting through the roof. Now, this packed, crowded house, Jesus is teaching, preaching, healing probably. They can't get in because they're, they're carrying a guy. There's four of them. Mark and Luke tell us there's four of them carrying this paralytic. They can't get to Jesus, so they go up on the roof and they start digging through the roof and they drop this guy down. So while Matthew doesn't mention that fact, he does call our specific attention to this miracle, piquing our interest with the and behold clause. What Matthew wants us to know is that some people bring a paralytic to Jesus with this paralyzed man lying on a bed. So as we behold this, just think about this scene, okay? Put yourself in the place of the people carrying this man. And again, we know from the other accounts there's four of them. Put yourself in the man's place who's lying on this bed. Think about Jesus seeing them. Think about the crowd looking on it all. And behold it. Think about this. Don't just lightly pass over that simple statement. Engage it mentally. Engage it emotionally. Knowing that this is not just a story that Matthew is telling. Knowing that this is a historical account that He has been inspired by the Holy Spirit to relay. And so we dig into it. Now, let me tell you what we don't know. We don't know if the paralyzed man had asked to be taken to Jesus or if those who are carrying Him proposed it. You're not going to hear words, literal words, from anybody in this passage except Jesus. So the man doesn't speak. His friends don't speak. The crowd don't speak. Not literally. We see some things... We're going to see the scribes and or Pharisees kind of grumbling amongst themselves in their hearts. But we don't know whose idea it was to bring this man to Jesus. But we can kind of get the scene in our head as we behold it. We know that this guy, whether it was him or his friends, was looking for healing. They bring a paralyzed guy on a mat, four of them carrying it. They had heard of Jesus' ability to heal. His fame had spread, we said, back in Matthew 4, up into Syria even, and the, the uttermost parts of that region. Either the man or these people had heard people talking about this rabbi who was showing more and more to be so much more than just a teacher. Had he not already healed a centurion servant who had been paralyzed? He had. But would he do something like that again? Would he do it for... Them, would he do it for me? He had healed that servant with just a word from afar. But they wanted to make sure to get this man to Jesus. Even if it meant digging through somebody else's roof to do so. Now, what if somebody did that at your house? And what does Matthew say was the result of this effort to bring this man and set him before Jesus? He says, Matthew says, And when Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saw their faith. He saw their belief in his ability to heal this man. Now, how did he see it? He saw their faith in what they did. That's an application point we're not going to do, but tuck that away. We see your faith by what you do. What they did showed their faith. We don't know where they came from, how far they had traveled, how heavy this guy was, who said what, or much at all. But we do know that Jesus saw their actions as faith and that he was a, their faith was in the fact that He was able to help them. And help them, we would suppose, in the form of healing Him. And when Jesus saw that faith, what did He do? He said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. I don't know about you, 
But that's not what I think would follow this display of faith. Jesus sees their faith. They lower this paralyzed man down to him. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Well, thanks, but um, uh, I can't imagine... I can't imagine that they set out carrying this guy thinking, well, go to Jesus and he'll forgive your sins. I mean, that'd be great, but I can't imagine that was their goal. I can't imagine that's what they wanted. They were seeking physical healing for this paralyzed man. So I'm sure their faith was in Jesus' ability to heal this man physically. They wanted his paralysis healed. They wanted his paralysis gone. But Jesus didn't say that or do that. He addressed the man's sins and he said, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now that's a, that's a wonderful sentence. But I would think in this context, it's a little bit of a disappointment. Wouldn't you? I don't want to capitalize on the moment, but what if as Miss Linda's leaving here, we say, Your sins are forgiven. She's like, I know. I think it was disappointing to him. I can imagine some furrowed brows. Maybe somebody going, um, oh, oh, okay, well, okay. Maybe even a wait, but thing going on. Wait, but, but, but. But again, we don't know what anyone said except the scribes. Look at verse 3. We know what they think. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. So as was usual... When Jesus was somewhere ministering or teaching, there were scribes and or Pharisees there listening and watching, hoping Jesus would trip up or mess up somewhere so that they could discredit Him. Well, they really think there's something to get Him with here, don't they? And behold, Matthew says again, these scribes said, this man is blaspheming. Actually, they say it to themselves. Whether it was out of fear of Jesus or fear of the crowd or fear of being wrong, they don't say it out loud, they say it to themselves. And whatever the reasoning, these scribes reason to themselves that Jesus is blaspheming. Now, what does that mean? We hear the word blaspheme. That's a very churchy word, right? Let me unchurch it for you for just a minute. Anybody have to say the Blues Brothers? Don't watch it, it's a terrible movie. Watch it on VidAngel if you can, or so take all the cussing out, because there's a lot. Well, let me set the stage for you, okay, for for the Blues Brothers. I I promise this is appropriate, okay? The Blues Brothers say that they're on a mission from God to raise money to pay the taxes for the orphanage that they grew up in or the orphanage is going to get closed, okay? So their way of making money is they had a band back before Jake went into prison. And so they're trying to get the band back together. And they go to the Soul Food Cafe, to try to recruit their guitar player and their sax player to be a part of the band to do this benefit concert. Well, the waitress there is Aretha Franklin. Okay, She's the guitar player's lady in the movie. And when they said they're on a mission from God, she says, Don't you blaspheme in here! I don't know what she meant there, but let me tell you what the word blaspheme means. Okay, The Greek word is blasphemo, and it means to speak reproachfully to rail at, to revile, to be evil spoken of. So what Aretha Franklin was saying was, don't invoke the name of God for your purposes. That's blaspheming. That's, that, that's making God common, making God like you, and you're really speaking evil of God because you're saying God wants what you want. Okay. Now here, Matthew says that you've got a Blues Brothers lesson. You can point, tuck that away. We're done with them today. Okay. What Matthew says here is, When he's talking about blasphemo, Jesus had said, he had spoken to the paralytic in front of him and said, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Well, that doesn't seem evil or reproachful, now does it? Does it? Well, it depends on who's saying it, right? Right? Seems pretty nice, but they knew exactly what Jesus was saying when he said, Your sins are forgiven. They knew exactly what he was saying. They knew that he was making a dramatic pronouncement. Not just a kind thought, not just a kind word. You see, there is only one being in the universe who can forgive sins. And who is that? It's God. 
So Jesus, in His saying that this stranger's sins were forgiven, was saying much more than that just this stranger's sins were forgiven. He was putting Himself in the place of God. And that would be to speak a reproach to God in the mind of the scribes. This man, notice that's what they said to themselves, this man is blaspheming in referring to Jesus. This man, this peasant from Nazareth, this man is surely not God and for him to say something that would put him in God's place is blasphemous. And they are righteously indignant. He's speaking blasphemy. He's speaking reproachfully against God. Jesus even called this man my son, which would be to make himself this man's father with a capital F. And combine that with the godlike forgiving of sins, Jesus is clearly putting himself in God's place in this man's life. And the scribes were so mad, they grumbled to themselves. Because after all, these were only words, right? This man is simply speaking blasphemous words, right? Four and five. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise and walk. As per usual, Jesus, who was God in the flesh, spoiler alert, knew what these scribes were thinking and that He knew what they were grumbling about within themselves. And He points out that what they are thinking is what? Evil. What they are thinking is evil. Why do you think evil in your hearts? Man, it must have been tough to be around Jesus. It's like wanting to wear one of those aluminum foil caps just to see if you can make sure he can't see into your mind, right? Or right here so he can't see into your heart. Seems like he knew what people were thinking most of the time. A divine prerogative. So they think he's blaspheming and he says their thoughts of him blaspheming are evil. And then he confronts them with that evil and says that that evil resides where? In their hearts. Why do you think evil in your hearts? Why do you, evil, sinful men, accuse me, the Holy Son of God, of blasphemy as I say that this man's sins are forgiven? Why? And then he confronts them with another question. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? That's a pretty hard question, by the way. Now for Jesus, who we've already seen in previous weeks, can heal people with just a word, either of these statements is easy. But for others, who happen to not be God in the flesh, which is everybody else but Him, it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven. Why would it be easier? Because you can't prove that. Okay? Your sins are forgiven. God bless you. People would be going, well, are they? The person's going, well, are they? The guy saying it's like, well, are they? I don't know. But it's easy to say that because you can't have tangible proof of it. Right? If you're just a natural, normal person, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven than rise up and walk. Because if I say rise up and walk and you don't rise up and walk, guess what? I'm a fraud. I'm a phony. And there's no power in my words. So for them, it would be easier to say your sins are forgiven even though they couldn't really forgive sins because it wouldn't require proof. If you said rise up and walk and the guy didn't stand up and walk, well, there's no proof. But Jesus flipped the script. He said the guy's sins are forgiven, which could not be proven in any tangible way. Now the question is, why would he do that? I think he is purposefully setting this scene up. In this progression over the past chapter and now into chapter 9... In Matthew, he's been exercising control and authority over a lot of different things. We talked about it. Leprosy, paralysis, fever, sickness. Remember the winds and the waves that obeyed him? Demons last week? And now he claims authority over something that can't be seen or shown, and that's sin. 
And ultimately, this, sin, sin is man's greatest need. Oh, it's great to be physically healed. It would be awesome to be able to control the weather like my friend Bunky. Those of you that were here, he only did that once. It's quite a rush to see demons expelled. But how do we react when someone's sins are forgiven? How did you react when your sins were forgiven? Can we really know for sure? Can we even truly feel if and when ours are forgiven? So if we don't really know sometimes, it's tough to look at somebody else and say, Oh, yay, his sins are forgiven. But Jesus here is claiming authority over the invisible power of sin. And that's tough for us because sins isn't quantifiable for us. We can't see them disappear or watch them go away. But we know that only God can really make that happen. And it's God's ledger that matters whether we have access to it or not, whether we can see it or not. So back to Jesus' question, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Well, for Him, there's not a harder. But for proof, it's harder to say your sins are forgiven because you can't prove it. And yet Jesus doesn't shy away from doing it. But He also doesn't dodge the other, verse 6. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And I just, I just love this. I love the way that Jesus just masters a room. This is not little baby Jesus meek and mild. Mamby, pamby, pasty mouth, white Jesus who just sits and looks at people like he's scared to death. This is not that Jesus. This is very God of very God and very man of very man. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And this here is kind of like what we said about the pigs last week. Why did, why did Jesus let the demons go into that herd of pigs? It was for a physical sign to verify what Jesus had said so that they would know without a doubt. They said, can we go into the pigs? Jesus said, go. The demons left the men, went into the pigs. The pigs ran down the hill into the sea and they died. And the men were clothed and in their right mind. So there was a physical sign so that people knew that, yes, indeed, this legion of demons had left these men. Here, Jesus is going to give a physical sign that's going to leave no doubt that what He said was true, both. Both your sins are forgiven and I can heal you physically, even though He doesn't say that. Jesus addresses the which is harder question by showing that neither is hard for Him. But He does want them to know that His take heart my son your sins are forgiven statement wasn't a bluff. So he does something to show that his words are pure power. And again, note why he does it. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's the point. That's the reason for what he does. He wants them to know, all of them in that room that night, he wants them to know that he, Jesus, the Son of Man, the long-awaited Messiah, has authority. Sin-forgiving, God-alone-ish authority. He wants them to know that His authority, Jesus' authority, as a man sitting there in that room that night, that His authority is divine. His authority is God-authority. And all the prior miracles showed a different side of His authority, and they all showed that Jesus was the Messiah promised in the Old Covenant. Now we hear that word a lot. Messiah. What's it mean? It didn't mean much to us. We sang it this morning. Jesus, Messiah. Name above all names. And we're going, yeah, Messiah. Yes. And if I ask you if Jesus was the Messiah, you'd say, yes, He is. What's that mean? The Messiah was the promised one that all through the Old Testament, God was setting the stage for a deliverer. The word Messiah means anointed one and His anointing who would bring with Him a lot of different things, including healing power, including dominion over demons, including ruling over nature, and including forgiveness for sins. The Messiah encases all of that and so much more. 
And we've seen through Matthew 8, Jesus saying, I'm over diseases. I'm more powerful. I have authority over diseases. I have authority over demons. I have authority over the very forces of nature. And here, ultimately, He says, I can forgive your sins, which is what the Old Covenant had promised. I'm going to read you a couple passages quickly. Ezekiel, Ezekiel. <laughs> Ezekiel 36, verses 25 through 27. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is what we call the new covenant. And it is the Messiah who would usher in this new covenant where if you see here in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you. What's he talking about? He's talking about sin. He promises that in Ezekiel. He promises it also in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For... I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See the for statement there? All that stuff leading up to that is saying because for I'm going to forgive their sins. And that's what the Messiah was going to do when He came and that's exactly what Jesus is saying that He's doing here. I'm going to forgive your sins. And here with a proclamation, take heart. My son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus is assuming publicly the role of Messiah. And we see it all through the Old Testament. Different references. Isaiah speaks of it several times. We'll look at that at the end. Pointing out that God's Messiah would do what no one else could or would. He would forgive sins. So Jesus wants those in that room that night, hole in the roof and all, to know that He is the Messiah and that He can forgive sins. So, for proof, He says to the paralytic, very matter-of-factly, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Well, the audacity. And I'm sure everybody was going, is it going to happen? Is it going to work? Is it going to take He'd already said that the man's sins were forgiven, but now, now he tells him to rise, pick up his bed, and go home. He who had been carried by four people to this place, he who had no recorded words in this account, he who suffered from paralysis was told to get up, pick his bed up, and go home. So that those that night who saw and heard what was going on would know that Jesus had authority on earth to forgive sins so that they would know through this paralyzed man that Jesus was God's Son, that Jesus was God's Messiah. And did it work? Verse 7, And he rose and went home. Now again, don't just blow through that short verse. Don't make that your memory work this week either, by the way. Matthew 9, 7, And he rose and went home. That's my post-church verse right there. He rose and went home. I didn't him and took a nap. That's my... Don't just blow through this. Jesus had already told him that his sins were forgiven. And we don't have any reaction from anybody in the room but that. We don't have any reaction from the man who's lying paralyzed on a mat from that. The only reaction we have are the scribes grumbling in their hearts. So we don't know what the man lowered through the roof on his mat had thought about having his sins forgiven. Never get that report, but we do get this reaction. After Jesus' command to rise up, take his bed and go home, the man rose up, took his mat, and went home. And we don't know if this man had always been paralyzed or if it happened later in his life, but at this point in his life, Jesus spoke the words and he was physically healed. And he rose and went home. Now can you imagine that moment? 
Can you imagine that walk home? Dude's like, that's my bed. <laughs> Amen. Can you imagine his entry through the door of his house? Can you imagine his explanation? As everybody's going, you were carried out of here. Can you imagine the exhilaration? Can you imagine the rest of his life? He had come in contact with God in the flesh. And he had been healed. But he had been healed in more ways than just one. Which do you think affected him more? Oh, we want the miracle, y'all. We want the physical sign. We want the proof. And I don't know what affected him more. I don't know. But I think we read when Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven, and we yawn a little bit. And I think we read that he rose and went home, and we're like, Yes! Because we're on this side of the cross. And unfortunately, we're not wowed by the forgiveness of sins anymore. Feels good. Yeah, I'm glad. Yep. Praise God. My sins are forgiven. Whoa, Jesus just healed somebody. It's our natural human tendencies. What a marvel it must have been to be lowered into that room full of sin and devoid of the use of his limbs and to leave that room forgiven and walking upright. I'll say this. He had to be elated to be able to rise up, carry his bed, and walk, no doubt. But I think the longer range effects came from having his sins forgiven. I know eternally that's true. He was going to be healed physically in eternity after having his sins forgiven. That was going to happen. But I just can't think that this rising up and going home was just a reflection of of having his body healed. It was directly rooted in coming into contact with Jesus face to face, man to God, and being changed on the outside and the inside. And he rose and went home. Indeed he did. Last verse. When the crowd saw it, (laughs) they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So how did everybody else react? Well, when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. Seems to be a pattern, doesn't it? We saw it in the boat. When Jesus calmed the storm, it says the disciples had been afraid of the storm and they were greatly afraid of Jesus after He's calmed it. When He sent the, pig, the demons into the pigs, all the town came out and said, please leave. And it says that they were afraid. The Greek word here is phobeo, P-H-O-B-E-O, and it means to be filled with fear. They're not megasphobos, but they're filled with fear. Jesus had just forgiven a man of his sins and healed him of paralysis, and those who saw it were afraid. Why? I'll tell you why. Because we fear what we don't understand. We fear what we can't figure out, and we definitely fear what we can't control. Like the disciples in the boat on a calm and glassy sea. Like the townspeople who heard about the pigs. These people were afraid of all this power. They were afraid of all of this authority. All of this Jesus. Oddly enough, Jesus had told the paralyzed man earlier, Take heart, my son, before he forgave his sins. And I think there's a connection here. Why? Well, the way Jesus told him to take heart means for him to not be afraid. And the word that he used is a call to not be afraid because there's nothing to be afraid of. Now, we might be marching into battle and I might look at you all and say, don't be afraid, but you got reason to be afraid because there's guns and people who want to shoot you. That's a different kind of don't be afraid. It's summon your courage and work through the fear. That's not the take heart, my son, that Jesus gave to this man. He tells him, don't be afraid because there's nothing to be afraid of. Your kid yells at you and says, there's something under my bed. 
And you come in and you say, let me look. And you turn on the light and you look. And there's nothing there. There's nothing to be afraid of. It makes a difference when there's nothing there. And you show them, look, nothing there. Nothing there. They're like, okay. That's what Jesus said to this man. There's nothing to be afraid of. Don't be afraid there's nothing there. It's not a call to be brave in the face of danger, but a call to know that fear is unnecessary. John MacArthur says it's like Jesus saying to this man, Child, what are you afraid of? There's nothing to fear. But then these folks in 9-8 see the miracle and they are afraid. Why? Jesus hadn't taken their sins away. And so here, in the presence of perfect holiness and absolute authority, they were afraid. They were afraid of the raw, untamable power and authority that Jesus had just shown. Their sins, their doubts, their failures, their paralysis, which was of a different nature, were still on full display and they were afraid. He hadn't spoken to them that their sins were forgiven. And when you're in the presence of the one who can forgive sins and you don't know that your sins are forgiven, you're going to be afraid too. This is my judge and he sees sin on me. You're going to be afraid too. I think I would have been too in that moment. But I like the next part of the verse. When the crowd saw it, they were afraid and... They glorified God who had given such authority to men. Yes, they were afraid, but their fear was God-glorifying fear. We talked about that a couple weeks ago when we saw the disciples freaked out in the boat. We have to have a healthy fear of the majesty, power, and authority of God. Their fear was present, and they glorified God in the midst of it. The word for glorified is doxadzo, and it means to praise, extol, magnify, celebrate, to honor, to render something excellent, to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. These people saw God act through Jesus, Jesus act as God, and they, though afraid, recognized and proclaimed God as awesome as a result of it. And what are they celebrating? They're not celebrating a guy getting up and walking. They're not celebrating a guy having a sins forgiven. They're celebrating the authority of Jesus. It says, And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. They saw the sin-forgiving, paralysis-healing authority of Jesus, and they praised, extolled, magnified, celebrated, and honored God for it. They saw the truth of these things in and through Jesus and they praised God for it. He who had given such authority to men, actually to one man, the God-man. They saw the very authority of God in the man Jesus and they were in awe of it and praised God for it. They praised God as they watched the formerly paralyzed man walk out with his mat after Jesus spoke words of forgiveness and healing to him. What about us? How will we we respond to this today? It happened a long time ago. I'm not real sure. The Word of God is for application today. And there's some things we could talk about that we're not going to talk about. We could talk about faith and fear, but we did that a couple weeks ago, right? There in the boat with the disciples. Go back and refresh yourself on that if you need to. But our three points today from this passage... Focus on three major emphases. You could call them critical parts if you want to. Three G's. Guilt, God, and glory. Our application points are guilt, God, and glory. The first one is guilt. And I believe this is the key. This is the most vital part of this passage today. Listen to what I'm about to say. Jesus Christ can forgive your sins. Jesus Christ can forgive your sins. Jesus Christ can remove the guilt in your life because of your sins. Jesus Christ can pass the verdict of not guilty upon your life if you will put your faith in Him. Oh, that's neat. Heard that all your life, haven't you? Heard that in Bible school, in Sunday school, 
and Big People's Church and when you read the Bible and when you watched Veggie Tales and all this good stuff. And those things are good and they're great. And if we're not careful, they lull us into sleep to this truth that Jesus Christ can forgive your sins. My sins, your sins, have created a chasm between us and God. God is holy. He is without sin and He cannot stand to have sin in His presence. If anybody or anything brought sin into the presence of God, they would be instantly incinerated. And that's not an overstatement. You don't bring sin into the presence of God because He is holy. Our sins cause us to be unworthy of being in God's presence. These sins alienate us from God and crush us with fear, shame, and doubt. Don't believe me? Come hang out with me at the therapy joint one day. And what most people are worried about is what they've done in their past. Their guilt, their shame, their doubt, their blame. And they can't get rid of it. And what I'm telling you today is Jesus Christ can take that all away from you. Jesus, this very same Jesus that we've seen today, can forgive your sins. He can forgive my sins. So let me ask you this right now. Do you know that you are a sinner? Do you know that your sins need to be forgiven? Now you may point at other people and say, so-and-so, they're a sinner. Yes, I know, I know what they've done. No, this is not about anybody else. This is about you. Do you know that your sins need to be forgiven? If your sins are not forgiven, when you pass into eternity, God will justly judge you as worthy of condemnation and will punish you forever for your sins in eternal hell. That is every one of us. The answer to the question, who needs forgiveness, is everybody. There is none righteous, no, not one. And forgiveness is only found in and through one person, and that's this very same Jesus that we've been talking about this morning. I said earlier that God had promised this forgiveness all through the Old Testament when He would usher in the kingdom through His Messiah. We looked at a couple of passages earlier. Isaiah 1.18, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, and they are, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, and they are they shall become like wool. Again, Isaiah 43, 25 and 26. I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue together. Set forth your case so that you may be proved right. God is the one who forgives your sins. And why does He do it? For His sake. Because your sins are an affront to a holy God. Your sins put you at odds, at conflict with the God of the universe. And for His sake, He chooses to blot those transgressions out and to not remember your sins. That's a pretty cool cool deal there. How how does He do it? Isaiah 53, 4-6. Surely He has borne our griefs. Who is the He here? He is the prophecy of the coming Messiah, the suffering servant who is Jesus. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. All we, all we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Your sins can be forgiven because Jesus Christ took them upon the cross, upon Himself, and God punished your sins in the person of Christ. Punished them to the point of And they got his broken dead body off that cross and they laid it in the tomb. Guess what else was laid there with him? My sins. And if you're in Christ, your sins. Jesus Christ can forgive your sins. And that's the best news you'll ever hear. That's the Old Testament we just looked at. And the New Testament is full of explanations of how Jesus did this. We'll just use this. 
for our sake. So He did it for His sake. He did it for our sake. He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus knew no sin. God placed your sins upon Him, punished your sins, and then He did something as miraculous as forgiven our sins. He gave us the very righteousness of God. This holy God who can't stand sin in His presence said, I want to give you that very same holiness, that very same righteousness as a gift. Jesus Christ can forgive your sins. We sing it, and we'll probably sing it next week because I'm doing music. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Jesus Christ has forgiven me of my sins because I've placed my faith in Him. Which brings us to our second application point. The first was guilt, which can be gone. How is it gone? By God. God's plan included Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one of God in and through whom the plan and purposes of God have been, are being, and will be accomplished. There's only one way to have your guilt removed and that is through the life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and glorification of Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. And Jesus proclaimed Himself to be Messiah today in our passage when He claimed that He had authority to forgive sins. Your righteous deeds will not get you there because they're like filthy rags, Scripture says. Your efforts, your best efforts will not get you there. God has ordained this plan so that the only way that your sins can be taken out of the way, the only way that you can receive the righteousness of God is through the work of the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. And in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit was fallen upon these first few believers and Peter is preaching this message, one of the first things that he says is this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So the call is for us today, not just the house of Israel, but for us today as those who have been included in the Israel of God, that Jesus Christ is the Christ. And God has made Him both Lord and Christ. Because that was His work. That was His role. And it's still His place in heaven. He's still the Christ of God. I mentioned Romans 3 earlier. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I would say faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Salvation is God's work accomplished through the Messiah. Your guilt is taken away because of what God has done through Christ the Messiah. And that leads us to one thing, one thing, glory. Guilt, God, and glory. The pronouncement of the forgiveness of sins and of physical healing by the Christ of God led the people in that room from our account today to do one thing. It says that they glorified God, even in their fear. When we understand that we have been forgiven, when we understand that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one of God, we will give glory to God. Like we've seen and said so many times before, this glory, glorification of God, this is the point of it all. All of it comes back down to this. You are to glorify God with your life. 
Our deliverance by the person and work of Jesus leads to God being praised and honored and glorified. That guy did not pick up his mat that day and say, Hey, look at me. I must have been pretty cool for Jesus to do this for me. We don't bring attention to ourselves. God got up, picked up his mat, went home. And the people sat there slack-jawed, glorifying God. We see this over and over and over in the New Testament. I want to read a few verses out of Colossians and Ephesians as we finish just to see this glory in action, what it looks like. Listen to this. Colossians 1, 9 through 14. And so, from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, there's glory, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption. Oh, look at that, the forgiveness of sins. And why? So that we can be strengthened and live and give thanks to the Father who has done these things. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10, we'll be done. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, before there was time, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. All of this was so that it might be to the praise of His glorious grace. Maybe you're sitting here today and you know nothing of the forgiveness of sins. And I offer you this gift this morning in the name of Jesus the Christ. Have your sins forgiven as you carry them to Him and say, I need forgiven and I believe you and you alone can forgive me. How will you know if it worked? You're not going to be able to rise and take your bed and walk. You're going to know that it worked as your life begins to glorify God and not yourself. Maybe you're sitting here today and you received the forgiveness of your sins when you was five years old. And it's not special to you anymore. I would ask you to remember. I would ask you to think about my sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin not in part but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. And celebrate the God of grace who has taken away the guilt of your sins. Glorify Him. These are the vital parts. These are the main things that we have to have in order to know and to live in the light of this salvation. Forgiveness by the work of Christ to the glory of God. Without them, none of us will see heaven. But because of them, some of us will. Where are you today? Let's pray. God, would you please open our eyes to the need of the gift of forgiveness of our sins. We cannot accomplish that in and of ourselves. So we look to Jesus, the Christ, and we trust in His sacrifice. The work is done. Wood and nails. My sins upon that body. 
May we trust in it. May we glory in it, God. Giving you the glory that belongs to you and you alone. So that we might enjoy you now and forever. Holy Spirit, breathe life into the dead places and into the places that have seen life and have let it ebb and flow. Convict us and show us the great gift that is the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus the Christ to the praise of your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Stay neat with us if you can.